0: Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. page 984 in these Bibles from the pews. Andy Wyatt and I have been a team preaching through the book of Colossians. He finished chapter 2 last week and today we'll begin chapter 3. Remind you that... um, that this was the only church the Apostle Paul wrote to that he never met these people. He never visited Colossae, if you remember in our introduction. He had spent um, three years in in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, and had gone there and evangelized and planted a church. And a man named Epaphras had heard the gospel, apparently been converted, and he went the seventy miles to the city of Colossae and told them what he had heard and people were converted and they planted a church and Paul now has gotten reports about that church and he's writing to them and unlike um, or like many of the other churches in the New Testament they were being threatened by false teaching that had was entering in or on the verge of entering into their local church and so he's writing to address that and the way he does it is to reinforce and stress the truth Of what uh, God has done through Christ. And so today we'll just be looking at the first few verses of Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through through 4. Hear God's Word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, it's not within our natural capacity to understand and certainly to have insight into your word, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Transform us, even in these moments, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Each year, and usually in February, our church has a missions conference where we, for a weekend, we have missionaries from various places around the world that come and, and we uh, get to hear about their work. We recommit to prayer and giving to support and so forth as we plan to do again in and, and, uh, this coming February. But I remember a conversation with some of the missionaries that had been serving for years in Australia, and I said, How are you received there? How is the work going? How's the ministry going? And uh, the response uh, somewhat surprised me. said, m- most of the uh, people we rub shoulders with in Australia just see Christianity as another, just another set of rules trying to be imposed upon them, a set of rules trying to be imposed upon them. And I thought Australia is really no different than here in America because that's, that's pretty much how a lot of people see it. Um, here as well. If you you see your relationship with God as as being nothing more than a set of rules uh, and if you think that that will get you through following Christ through the hard times of life, through the ups and downs of life, uh, it will not do so. Uh, And You need a vibrant relationship with Christ and that is exactly what's talked about here in these verses at the beginning of Colossians 3. The Apostle Paul who wrote this knew that transformation in the life of a believer happens from the inside out. It's not a code of conduct that is impressed upon a person from the outside in, but it's a change of heart, it's a new creation, which leads to a change of action, which leads to a whole change in perspective about life and about death. If you're a Christian here today, you've experienced that. There, there is no faith in Christ without transformation. Uh, it's impossible to separate those two. So let's look uh, at really... It looks like a short passage, but I'm just going to pick a few of the highlights because it begins with what we call resurrection language. If you then have been raised with Christ, to be raised to life assumes that you have died. Uh, Here, Paul is referring back to something he wrote in chapter 2, verse 12. He's describing what baptism is. And he's not talking so much about water baptism, the symbol, the sacrament of baptism. He's talking about a baptism of the heart. He says, having been buried, in chapter 2, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. So he's describing the spiritual reality that we call the union with Christ, that when we trust, when we receive Christ, when we believe in him, when we put our confidence in the fact that he died to pay For my sins then I am enter into this mystical union so that you and I as a believer we are in Christ we can't explain it but we we are and we're buried with him he says here we are raised with him and and so for most of us the sacrament of baptism water baptism probably did not cost you anything Uh, it did not put your life at risk you did not have to hide it from your family or friends out of fear of being ostracized or being killed perhaps for some of you it was a very very serious matter uh, but here he's talking about the fact that that the baptism signifies this change that takes place and that we are not the same person he says you're raised with christ well where is christ first one tells us he is at the right hand of god if you are invited to a banquet imagine a large banquet with hundreds of people there and you enter the banquet hall and and someone greets you at the door and you say well I'm here i received an invitation and I assume I have a seat back here at one of these tables they say no come with me come with me and you walk and you realize this person is taking you to the very front right at the very front and they seat you at the right in the chair to the right to the right hand of the person that is hosting the, the banquet that is the place then and now, the place of honor, the place of esteem, the place of affection, and that is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The Bible often speaks of this, of Jesus' exalted position at the right hand of God the Father. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In Luke chapter 22, it said, From now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And Ephesians 1 says that in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So the Apostle Paul is saying, "If, if believer, as a believer, if you have died and you have with Christ and then raised with him and seated at the right hand of God, Paul is saying those privileges... Those honors, those affections that are bestowed on God the Father to Jesus the Son are yours too. John Bunyan, who wrote, among other things, Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote how every Christian has the privilege to possess a magic mirror. And on one side is this mirror, and and you see your reflection, and you see your sins, and you see your faults, and you see your scars. But on the other side of this mirror is the image of Christ with his righteousness and his obedience to God's law and his perfections. And so what Bunyan was saying through that picture is that God sees you, all your sins and defects, and he sees you through the image of Christ so all of his perfections are given to you it means that god sees you as precious and as esteemed as his own child do you believe that odds are you don't we have a hard time with that christian Uh, if i were to ask you today hey describe tell me who you are in christ let me preface this this summer when i had this time away I really wrestled and I read over and over and over the first two pages of Calvin's Institutes where he says that the goal of the Christian life is to know God and to know yourself. And I really, I'd heard that from the time I'd been a young Christian in high school. But I had never taken the time to think, what exactly did he mean? If I ask you, tell me who you are, before God. Your answer, if you know your Bible, probably will be, I'm a sinner. But why would that be the first answer, rather than saying, I am a sinner who is forever loved with an everlasting love by God's grace, and I am precious in his sight? That is what Paul is reminding them. He's saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, you are seated with him at the right hand of God, the Father. And so, realize that. You must realize that. Do you realize, do you ponder Do you ponder the way God sees you with the perfections of Christ or do you spend your day being down on yourself or feeling inferior or feeling guilty about your sin or are you meditating on the way that God sees you with the righteousness of Christ? Note also what it says about Jesus, that he not only is at the right hand of God, he is seated. Now at this part, this becomes heavy with what you could call temple language. Stick with me for just a moment. Especially if you've not read the Bible, if you don't have a background uh, of much of the Bible, let me explain to you that God had his people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and they, they ended up in slavery in Egypt for some 400 years, and then God, by his mighty hand, delivered them from slavery. And they spent 40 years, an entire generation, in the wilderness area before entering the land that God had promised for them. While they were in that time of wandering, God provided a way where they would have a sense of his presence and where they would meet with him, physically meet with him. And he gave them great detailed instructions as to how to construct what was called the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting and the tabernacle was a rectangular, almost fence-shaped type thing, and then it had, it had various ceremonial pieces of furniture and, and where the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments were kept and so forth. Later, and there were specific instructions as to what was happening at that at tabernacle, later that became a permanent structure. It became the temple of God. And that was built under the third king of Israel named Solomon. And so this this language here that Paul is using is temple language about being seated. And the writer of Hebrews clarifies this. Listen to how that writer in Hebrews 10 says this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, why was it, you may ask yourself, that the priest stood up and offered these sacrifices? Why did he stand day after day in ancient tabernacle and then after that in the temple? Here's why. It's very, and I think this will help make more, much more sense out of this. There was an annual sacrifice in Israel known as the Passover when they would sacrifice a lamb to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt and what happened on a particular night. And the lamb would be slain. The lamb would be put to death as a sacrifice. As Israel matured over time, every family of the millions of people of that nation would slay a lamb on the night of the Passover sacrifice. Now I have a friend who I heard say was in the city of Dakar in Western Africa years ago. It's the westernmost city on the African mainland. It's the capital city of Senegal. Has some two and a half million people that live primarily in the metropolitan area. And he was there in Dakar on a certain night when the Muslims practice an annual event where they sacrifice a lamb. And so there are millions of people in this city, and he said, we have no concept of how bloody and how awful it is when millions of people slay a lamb on one night. He said the body parts fill the garbage, the blood runs and fills the sewers, and the stench overwhelms the city. And Israel did this annually for more than 1,000 years, annually at the Passover. Now, that was just one sacrifice. There was not only the annual Passover, there were seasonal sacrifices as well of first animals that were born. Then there were the first fruit sacrifices when crops were harvested. So we moved from annual to seasonal to first fruits and it wasn't just seasonal and first fruits there were monthly sacrifices for every new moon and it wasn't just monthly sacrifices there were weekly sacrifices on every sabbath day and it wasn't just weekly sacrifices there were daily sacrifices and it wasn't just daily there were sacrifices in the morning there were sacrifices in the evening And then there weren't just evening and morning sacrifices. There were personal sacrifices for your own personal sin as well. So we had annual, seasonal, monthly, weekly, daily, personally, and the priest did not sit down because he could not sit down because the sacrificing had to continue. You've heard me mention, if you've been here for a while, That in the Bible, we have the descriptions in the most minute detail of many of the articles that were in the temple. We know the materials that were used in the curtains for the tabernacle. We know the description of the seven-branch candlestick. We know about this huge laver that was there that was filled with water. We know the very dimensions that the temple was to be constructed We even know what material was used for the fringe on the priest's robe. But there was one article of furniture which is never described in the ancient temple. And what was it? A chair. There was no chair. There was no chair because the priest never sat down and the blood flowed because there was sin to be sacrificed for and it could not end. And you can keep... You have to keep on sacrificing and sacrificing for a thousand years plus more. And the blood flowed as lamb after lamb after lamb was sacrificed until, until one lamb went up on a hill of Calvary and was sacrificed on a Roman cross and the veil of the temple was torn asunder and the access was made freely to the Holy of Holies and the fire on the altar went out And the sacrificing was finished. And how do we know? What was the sign of that? The priest sat down. Jesus sat down. And you and I, through Christ and in Christ today, are at the right hand of God. And we recognize that we are not still standing, making sacrifice thinking if I just perform enough, if I just beat myself up enough, if I just do this and play, pay penance in my life, then somehow I will accomplish God's favor. Listen, you can sit down. You can rest right now for the rest of your life in his holiness because the sacrificing is over. Look at verse 3. You have died. In what sense has the believer died? Well, in the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid. The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. So someone has to die for sin. We refer to it around here as the, the bad news, good news. That God long ago created our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve. And they had a perfect relationship with God. They, they literally walked and talked with him in this, this garden of paradise. And God gave them one prohibition. One command, basically, not to eat of a certain tree. He said, he gave a threat with it, too. He said, the day you eat of it, if you do, you'll surely die. That was emphatic. You will die. Well, if you know the story, they did eat, did eat of it. But they didn't die physically. They lived for a long time after that. They died spiritually, that very moment. That perfect relationship with God that they had conversed with him, walked and talked with him, was broken. Now there's guilt, now there's shame. They hide from him. They hide from the one that they had loved so much before. And yet, even then, as they felt the, the sting of the curse, the punishment for sin, God promised a redeemer who would come later. That was Jesus Christ, who came, he was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect life, he obeyed God's law in every respect. Then he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified on a Roman cross. When he hung on that cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, just like one of those lambs that was sacrificed, the sin of his people was imputed, was credited, was put on him, and he was separated from God. He experienced spiritual death. He died physically shortly after that. Three days later, he rose, and for a period of almost 40 days, he appeared to several hundred people at different times, maybe as many as 2,000 people. And then his last command that he gave his disciples before he ascended to the right hand of the fathers that they were to go into all the world and to make disciples of all people groups, of all nations. That's the message that comes to you today. If you are trusting in anything else, in yourself, this is offered to you as a free gift. God says to receive this freely, to trust that when Jesus died, he paid for your sins. And he promises it to make you a new creature. He will transform you, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And so in that sense, we've died, but we're raised to newness of life. If you're raised, then that which was past, your sin, is gone. And instead of that, we're hidden with Christ and God. So it's like God the Father, and here's Christ, God the Son, and he hides us over here from God the Father, our sin. Did you see the blood moon on September 28th? How many of y'all watched that? Anybody? Okay, one, two. You can't believe it. You had an hour and 12 minutes. That's how long it lasted. The total lunar eclipse on September 28th. Now, just in case you've been a long time since you opened up a science book, you know, a, a solar eclipse is when the moon comes between the earth and the sun, it blacks out part of the, or maybe even all of the sun. Uh, but a lunar eclipse is when the Earth, there's the sun, and the Earth, this is very technical, what I'm doing right now, all this is to proportion, you know, here's the sun, and here's the Earth, and here's the moon. And when they line up like that, then it blocks the direct rays from the sun to the moon, and yet it has a red glow because it's still reflecting some of the light from Earth and so forth. Like I said, it lasted an hour and 12 minutes if the sky was clear, and by the way, I didn't see it either, my wife did, and she told me all about it. In a sense, what Christ has done is he has eclipsed us. And so by taking our sin upon himself, God sees him as the one who has died, who has paid the penalty now for the sin that we deserve. So he has eclipsed our sin, and that's what Paul is saying. But that's not the end. There's more. Verse 4, we will appear with him in glory. Jesus is coming back. Let me remind you of that. The Bible says the trumpets will sound and he will come with great glory. And who will be with him? We will appear with him. Now, there's a group of about ten guys. We study Russell Moore's book, Onward, great book. just came out several weeks, well, a couple of months ago. Great book about uh, being a Christian in our culture right now. And he, uh, Russell Moore writes that he was talking to a very, 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 had a very honest discussion with a woman who's very antagonistic toward the Christian faith. And he, uh, he says that, that uh, as she, he's talking to her, and, and she says, do you hear how ridiculous what you believe sounds? And his, and his response, as he writes in the book, is, it gets worse. We also believe a dead man came back, and he's going to return again, but next time he's coming from the clouds, and he'll be on a horse. <laughs> So yes, that's what's going to happen. That's what the Bible teaches. And we're to look forward to it. And we're to live with our hearts and minds set on that. We will appear with him. So when Christ appears again in his second coming, we will also be revealed in glory. Look at verse 4. You will appear with him in glory. We don't know much about that. But we will share in that. And that's why John writes in 1 John 3 verse 2. When he appears, we shall be like him. Well, what should be our response as I wrap this part up? um, There's two things we're told to do here in these opening verses. One, we're told to seek the things that are above in verse 1. It's the idea of of reflecting on it. But then verse 2, it gets a little more specific. It said, set your mind on things that are above. So he starts by saying, seek the things that are above. Then, verse 2, set your mind on things above. In other words, put it in concrete. Let it grip you. Let this truth grab you where it affects the way you think all through the day. The sense that he has loved you so much that, that old things have passed away. The thought of going from death to life and how it is meant to grip us. Have you ever received news that gripped you for days? Maybe it was bad news. Maybe it was the news of a sudden death of someone you love very much and maybe you hadn't seen in a long time and you're stunned when you hear it. And for days you just go, I I can't believe this. Or maybe it was some other type of bad news, a bad diagnosis, and, and your life has changed when you hear this. Maybe it was good news. Maybe it's for a student, the grade on the final you never expected, a good grade. Or maybe it's a financial windfall that you did not see coming or a job offer that on something that you had given up on, whatever it may be. It, it grips you. It preoccupies your mind where it's almost, it's almost whatever you're doing, eating, talking, exercise it's, it's there. It's in the background. That's what happened to me when I read books. And I told you I just finished a few weeks ago the autobiography of John Patton, uh, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the 1800s, now called Vanuatu, uh, off of Australia. And, and for days, and, and still now, I think about things I read in that book every day and, and the profound ways that, that God moved among these people that had never heard the gospel who were radically transformed uh, through the ministry of this fellow and others. And so God is saying, let that happen to you with this. He wants you to marinate your mind and your heart on this, to think about the fact, to wake up in the morning, to go to sleep at night, hell awaited me eternity apart from God, but God in his mercy has rescued me, he's resurrected me, he's raised me, he's eternally loved me. He wants you to think about this when you lie down, when you rise up. Glory is yours because of Jesus. And Paul stresses the reason that living in the heavenlies is to be the norm of the believer. If you are not thinking that way, if you are not dwelling on this and setting your mind on it, then later when he gets into commands about how we're to treat one another and how we're to function within marriage and within the family, it will just be burdensome. It will be like the Australians and the missionaries, somebody trying to impose rules on you. i close with this. R.C. Sproul tells about a man who came, uh, who came to him distraught with guilt from a particular sin. And the man said, and I quote from what I read, I've asked God to forgive me of this sin over and over, but I still feel guilty. What can I do? So he says, I've confessed this sin over and over and over, but I still feel guilty. What can I do? Now, to clarify, the situation did not involve constantly confessing the same sin that he was repeating over and over. It was multiple confessions of a sin he had committed once. you got the picture. Multiple confessions of a sin he had committed once. So R.C. Sproul says to him, well, you must pray again and ask God to forgive you. And the man said, but I've done that. I've asked God over and over again to forgive me. What good will it do to ask him again? And R.C. Sproul's reply back was not what the man expected. He said, I am not... Suggesting that you ask God to forgive you for that sin, I am asking that you seek forgiveness for your arrogance. And the man said, arrogance? What arrogance? You see, he was assuming that his repeated request for forgiveness were evidence of great humility. But in reality, what Sproul was saying, that you are so arrogant... That you think other people can get by on God's grace, but you're going to have to suffer no matter how gracious God is. And you are rejecting God's grace in your arrogance by not receiving the forgiveness that he has already given. See, when God promises that he will forgive us, I don't know a better way to say it, though this doesn't come out right. We insult his integrity when we refuse to accept it to forgive ourselves after God has forgiven us is not only a great privilege it is our responsibility it is your responsibility to do so let's pray together our father we only have partial knowledge of all that you have done through the work of Christ but we know our eternities are at stake on that so we ask that our trust, our faith, our hope our reliance would be on his work today you'd open the eyes of those perhaps here who've never thought about it or have rejected it, and that you would cause us, as your followers, as those who've been transformed, to seek the things that are above, to set our hearts and minds on those things daily. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, if you will, and let's sing our hymn of response. I'll sing the wondrous story.